Well, I want to encourage you this morning, if you have your copy of God's Word, or maybe there's a, there's a Bible there in the pew in front of you, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 23. Again, Genesis is the first book of the Old Testament, so turn all the way to the left and then look for chapter 23. Today, as we walk through and face this idea of death-facing faith, Death facing faith. As you make your way to Genesis chapter 23, it was the year 1868. Sanford Bennett sat there in his drugstore in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. And in walked one of his friends, Joseph Webster, who looked depressed. When Bennett asked him what was wrong, he simply responded, I'll be all right by and by. Immediately, both of them being musicians, Sanford Bennett stopped back and said, by and by. The sweet by and by. He said that has a ring to it. It was there actually in that moment in 1868 that he began to pin these words that you might know. There is a land that is fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. In the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Did you notice right there in the second verse? How do we see it afar? Did you hear it? And by what? By faith. And by faith, we can see it afar. You see, today, as we come to this end for Abraham and Sarah, this relationship that we've been walking with, this couple who was barren, and she finally, at age 90, gave birth to the son of the promise, Isaac. Now, this many years later, at 127, Abraham and his wife will be separated by death. And we see our brother as he walks through, and we're going to be reminded of a passage in Hebrews 11 we're going to turn to at some points. That they are walking by faith. But let's be honest. As we wrestle with this idea of death, it is death that often can feel overpowering, can it? I mean, as you contemplate your own death or you walk beside others who have died, I mean, death can feel crushing. It can feel insurmountable as we deal with the loss of those that we love. I mean, there can be times when we can feel like, man, in the midst of death that God's promises have failed. I mean, death in some ways, let's just be honest, it can feel like the end. And it's that moment that we step into Genesis chapter 23, and we're going to see Abraham, this man of faith that we've been walking beside, and even his wife, Sarah. And in the midst of that, we're going to see this truth, that faith empowers us to faith face death, believing it's not the end. Faith is going to empower us to face death, believing it's not the end. And because of that, we're going to wrestle with three big truths today. The first is this. Faith empowers us to face death, mourning, but with hope. Secondly, faith, faith empowers us to face death because we have a better home. And then third and last, faith empowers us to face death because death does not get the final word. So turn to me again. Genesis chapter 23, as we walk with Abraham in the midst of of his wife who has died. And I realize this resonates with some of you in this room different than others because you know this heartache. I see your faces of widows in this room. You feel the sting of this text. I pray that in the midst of it today, you might find comfort and encouragement in all of us as we face death. Looking at this hope, faith empowers us to face death mourning, but with hope. So look at me, would. Verse 1. Of Genesis chapter 23, verse 1 and 2. It says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the day, years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kerioth Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 
After Eve, Sarah is the first woman of great prominent importance in the Bible. She is in many ways the grandmother of Israel. She is the chief matriarch of God's people. And while her dying is highlighted here, let us not also forget those words there. Sarah lived. Sarah lived 127 years. But despite the fact that she has special status amongst God's people, the truth is Sarah's life was hard. As scholar Wayne or Gordon Wenham notes, think about this. She suffered the shame in her culture of being childless until she was the age 90. Consider that twice, not once, but twice, because of Abraham's lack of faith, mustered up through these fibs or lies, she was taken into a king's harem and potentially going to be violated. Sarah's life was hard in other ways too, but I think it's a reminder that despite Sarah's faith and special status in God's family, her life was still hard. And yet the truth is, in the midst of that, we saw in the midst of hardship, Sarah and Abraham experiencing great blessings, the promises of God, that they would become great, this, this, this great descendants would come from them. As many as the sand on the seashores, the stars in the sky. And it was there again at the age of 90 that we began to see these promises coming to light as Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac. But church, we shouldn't miss the fact that despite the blessings and promises of God, it does not mean that Sarah would not die. In fact, it doesn't mean that even Abraham won't die. And the truth is, it doesn't mean that you and I won't die either. Death is a reality because the wages of sin is what, church? Romans 6.23. From the beginning, God warned on the day that you eat of it. He told Adam and Eve, when you disobey me, when you eat and you sin against me, you will surely die. And so since that time, it's been passed on from our forebears onto us and we have inherited this sin nature and that has brought the curse upon us and we too experience death. Let's be honest, it's around us this morning, isn't it? I mean, as much as we love the fall, start looking, beloved. It's fastly fading. As James warns, we too are like those flowers. We are like a mist that is here for a little while and then vanishes. Peter says that we are like flowers quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow. The fall ought to remind you and I that unless the Lord returns, the winter is coming for us all. This is a moment. The reminder is whether you're the matriarch or the maid, whether you're the pope or you're a peasant, whether you're the CEO or you just eat Cheerios, the truth is death is coming for us all. How do we know that? Because the Word of God says it. Hebrews 9 and 27, death, it says this, we are all destined to die once and after that to face judgment. This is the weight that we feel in this moment and there it is. It says Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of Sarah's life, and Sarah died. And so we might ask, well, how does Abraham, this great man of faith, how does he deal with death? Maybe it gives some type of direction or clarity for us as we deal with death. Notice what he does, Sarah. Look again. Uh, pick up me, verse 2 at the end of it. It says, And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. That mourning indicates this bewailing, like this loud crying that he's experiencing. It's a deep heartache. And, and, and the word there for weep, when those words mourning and weeping often come together, it often has the, the traditional custom where they would tear their clothes. They might sprinkle ashes on their head and they might walk around in sackcloth and, and there would be times of fasting as an indication. Why? Why? Because this, faith is not 
the denial of reality. Death hurts. The sting is real. It hurts when those that we love die. So maybe you hear that and you wonder, well, Blake, you said that faith empowers us to face death mourning. I hear that. But you also said it's with hope. Where's the hope at? It, it, was, it was quiet in the way maybe it was introduced, but look what it says again. Back to verse 2. Again, look there. Look at God's word. And Sarah died at Kerioth Arbor. That is Hebron in what, church? Where is it? In the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan. It's interesting, right? The word Hebron there, it's about 20 miles south of Jerusalem near Mamre. Mamre is this important place that we encounter back in Genesis 13. It was there, right? If you remember the story that Abraham's there with his nephew, who's, who's what's his name? Lot. And, and right, he says, listen, their descendants are fighting and, and there's arguing. And he says, listen, there's not enough land for the both of us, right? This kind of that old western, this town ain't big enough for the two of us, right? It's kind of that moment. He says, listen, you go left, I'll go right, you go right, I'll go left. And so Lot goes toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, he judged by what his eyes saw, and we saw how that ended. But Abraham, it's seemingly we might think, man, Abraham, dude, you just gave up the promised land. But it was at the end of Genesis 13 that we hear that he says, God tells him, he says, look up, Abe. Look north and south, brother. Look east and west. And it says that all this I'll give you. And the cl- chapter closes with saying that Abraham goes ahead and put, p- pitches his tents there. And it says that in that place, he was actually at Mamre. So this moment right here, when it says that Sarah dies there in Hebron, she is right there near Mamre, the place of the promise. It's the spot. right? I mean, th- some of you, you know that, right? You think about the spot, the spot like where you got engaged, a spot like where you stood there with your right beloved and you made those vows for better or for worse, richer or for poor. The spot like when you held one of your children after the moment they were born. The spot when you said, hey, man, this is the house and we're gonna, this is the one we're going to take. We're going to live in our first house. The, the, the moment, the spot when you shook hands with that person to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to buy this or you know what, I'm going to begin working for you. Like that agreement that happened. It's this sense of this place of promise. That's where Sarah is dying. And Hebrews 11 picks up on this truth and, and, and it says to us in, in verses 6, it begins to talk about Abraham and Sarah or maybe that's verse Sorry, maybe that starts out with Noah there. Let me flip to it. Sorry, I had to move my thing. And so, verse 8, sorry. And so it talks about Abraham and Sarah in verse 8 of Hebrews 11. But look again to verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died, speaking of Abraham and Sarah specifically, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Did you hear that? Abraham and Sarah, and specifically as we think about Sarah in this moment, it says they died having not received everything that was promised. They haven't seen it all yet. Everything's still far off in the distance. It's in the horizon. But they have hope that even though they don't see it now, that they know that God is faithful. And since it says these all died in faith, Sarah dies in faith. Abraham, in the midst of this moment, can mourn in faith. He is in Hebron. He's in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. He has hope. You see, it was in 1963 when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood there at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. and said these words. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. 
we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are what, church? Created equal. See, I think it's interesting. Dr. King says, I have a dream that one day. That day hadn't come yet. And in some ways, let's be honest, we're still, there's a lot of fighting still for that, for equality and rights. But he has this hope that one day something's coming. In that sense, right, Abraham is dying there. Sarah is dying. And there's still hope for this one day. There's something still on the horizon. So in the midst of the morning, there's still hope of a greater day coming. And we as the people of faith, just like Abraham, listen, this reminds us, as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, he doesn't say the church is not to weep. He says God's people weep when those that we love die. But he says that we weep not as the world weeps. Because we have what, church? Hope. We have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. Therefore, when you stand at the grave of your spouse or your grandmother or even your child, it's okay to weep. Might this be a, just an instructive to men in this room? Abraham's no wimp, guys. I mean, if we remember back just a few chapters, we rewind the text back. He took 300 men that went after four kings that had just taken over five kings and all their armies. And 300 men go and rout four kings. He's no wimp. But what do we see him doing? He's mourning and weeping the death of his wife. So it is not a sign of weakness for men to weep. As Christian men, we ought to exemplify this. That doesn't mean that we all have to be cookie cutters the same. But it's okay for us to cry. It's okay for us to hurt and feel a sting when those that we love and care about are gone. But this brings us to a precarious moment for Abraham. His wife has died, and so now we must have to wonder this question. Will Abraham look to bury Sarah there in the land of Canaan, or will he return back to his homeland? I mean, think about that. Would you bury just your spouse in some land where, man, you don't know anybody else? Or would you look and maybe in some ways to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to go back to where maybe my parents or my grandparents were born. And each of us has those decisions to make. But something's happening here in the text that is rich and important that we don't want to miss. And that brings us to our second truth. Faith empowers us to face death because we have a better home. Faith empowers us to face death because we have a better home. It's interesting, right, that Sarah's life and, and seemingly her death only capture two verses, while we're going to deal verses 3 through, specifically through 16 or better, is all about this business deal. And you might think, why in the world gives so much attention to a business deal when Sarah's just died? There's a lot more happening here. It's a reminder of their faith and a, a reminder that this was not their home. And so this business deal takes place in three phases at the city gate, which in some ways we might translate to our culture as hey i'll meet you at the courthouse that's what's happening here so let's look through and walk through this moment here verses three through six of genesis 23 and abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the hittites i'm a sojourner and foreigner among you give me property among you for a burying place that i may bury my dead out of my sight the hittites answered abraham hear us my lord you're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Right? Abraham begins by acknowledging, listen, I, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. He says, I'm an outsider. I can't claim the 42743. He says, listen, I, I get it, right? We don't have the story. You, you don't know my, my daddy, and right? We can't talk about what we did growing up, like remember when. And so he says, listen, I, I don't have any place that is my own to bury my own wife and the Hittites respond simply, hey, listen, brother, you're like a prince among us. Like God's, we, we acknowledge God's blessings on you. Man, you pick the spot, you can bury your wife. But listen, Abraham, he's, he's after something more. Watch what happens, verse 7 to 11. 
Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites. This is the second part of the transaction, right? Just kind of these phases, second phase. The people of the land. He said to them, verse 8, If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Further, verse 10 and 11. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now we hear, right, Ephron's response. We might think, man, this guy's generous. And in some way, it sure appears that he is. And we might think, man, hopefully Abraham's going to take him up. Like, bro, like somebody's like, this, this is the good, right? I mean, some of you, right, you, you go out for a meal and you have those awkward moments when they're like, one check or right. And then it's like all of a sudden you're like heads down. Everybody's down. Like, man, they got to check their phone at that exact moment, right? Some of you are masters of like the bathroom break. You notice like that and they're coming. You're all of a sudden you're there and you're like, whoa, I got to go to the bathroom, right? And so you come back like, oh, man. So anyway, needless to say, that's, that's kind of this excursion. But there's, there's some way in which there's, there seems to be some playful banter, some conversation happening in the midst of this, right? And so, again, some of you know that feeling, wrestle with that. But we might wonder, why won't Abraham just take him up on this? And I think it's maybe helpful to consider that if Abraham does, in some ways might he be obligated to Ephron in other ways. And furthermore, what happens down the road when Ephron's off the scene and Abraham's off to the scene? Those descendants aren't going to remember. Remember Joseph, right? I mean, there rose up another Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and Joseph's God. So maybe you might think about it this way, right? Imagine that you need a place to right, store your mower and some tools, and man, you just don't have a lot of property, and so you look, and your neighbor, he's got quite a bit of land next to you, and you go to your neighbor and just simply say, hey, hey would you be willing to sell me just a little corner part right here that connects to my land? I need to build a garage on it. He's like, you know, man, don't worry about that. You just park your mower in my garage. You can put your tools in my garage. We know how long that works out well, right? What happens when he sells the land? So there's something happening here because we hear this response. We think, why wouldn't Abraham just take him up on this nice offer? But the reality is it won't ever really truly be Abraham's. And that's what the text is after. And so that brings us to our third and final part of the negotiation, verses 12 to 15. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What's that between you and me? Bury your dead. And so one final time, Abraham asked him, hey, sell me the land. And so Ephron finally responds, 400 shekels of silver. And there's all kinds of discussion about, is this a fair price? What we know is a thousand years later, where David buys a spot to build the temple, he buys it for 50 shekels. Later, Jeremiah, when he buys the potter's field, he buys it for 17 shekels. So there's some way it seems that this price is taking advantage of Abraham in his moment here. We're not necessarily sure. What we do know and are convinced of is that Abraham is willing, whatever the price is, to buy the land. And I think that's an important question. Why is Abraham buying this land and not returning home? I mean, wouldn't it just, again, be reasonable? Like, man, dude, you, you got a spot at home. You, can, you, can, you may not even pay for it. Like, Abraham, what, what are you doing here? Why not? Why, why this foreign land, Abraham? Why are you so emphatic to bury your wife here? Because, beloved, this is the land of Canaan, the land of God's promise. And that's what's happening in this text that we might miss just by reading through it and hearing the story. It's a reminder. Listen, this 
this is the land of God's promise. It is here that God has said, I will give to you this land and your descendants will have it. But guess what? Up until this point, Abraham, yeah, he has that well. You remember back in uh, there with Abimelech and the argument there. And finally he gets the well uh, back in Genesis chapter 21. But the reality is Abraham owns not even one inch of ground legally. And then there comes this moment where Abraham says, I'm going to stay. And it's a declaration of this. God, I trust you. What might that look like for you today? That declaration. God, I trust you. Whatever you're facing, whatever is up against. God, I believe Abraham seems to be saying that my homeland is always with you. Did you hear that? My homeland is always with you. I may be a stranger, an outsider, wherever you are. But God, when I'm with you, I'm never an outsider. You, by the blood of your son, have made me an insider. And that's exactly what Hebrews 11, 13 to 14 makes clear. Look what it says again. Hear these words again of Hebrews 11 we just read. It says, These all died in faith, speaking of Abraham and Sarah and others, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were, and this, listen to this language, strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Again, so this, this same verbiage that's used, right? I mean, where he says there in verse 4, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. I'm a stranger. I'm an exile. That's the very words of Hebrews 11 that they pick up on. Saying, listen, that's who we all are. But notice what it says there, a further distinction. He says we are strangers and exiles on the earth. Even, in other words, listen, it's not just that Canaan isn't the ultimate promised land. There's something beyond. There's a greater homeland that we all seek. There's, there's something Right? I mean, you may know that song, right? Beulah Land, I'm what? I'm longing for you. There's something more than this land. As great as the land of Canaan is, it's pointing to something greater, the writer of Hebrews says. And because of that, God's people, the people of faith, have and will always be strangers and exiles on the earth. This land is not our home. We are pilgrims on a journey. We are sojourners who are passing through here for a little while. We all long for the land where our faith shall become sight, where we will love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we shall love our neighbor truly as ourselves, perfectly and forever. And maybe you hear that today and you think, utopia? Yeah, right, man. That'll never happen. And I concede with you. You're right. You're right if it depends upon us. But that's why... Genesis 23 and Hebrews 11 and really everything in between and, and after and forward before that, it depends upon faith. It's faith that allows us not to hope in ourselves but in God. To trust that God is going to bring about His great promises. And ultimately, it was God who right through the sending of His Son, He tasted death for us. He took the curse that was against us. He took God's judgment that was awaiting us. And he dies on the cross. And the third day, by the power of God, he crushed the head of the enemy, declaring, right, that the wages of sin had been paid, the death that was waiting for all of us, the sting of death was gone. Christ had overcome sin in the grave. He was raised victorious. He ascends back to the right hand of the Father. And, beloved, one day he is going to return soon. He is coming again to bring us to that homeland. But we shall never part. This is why we sing and strive to live the words of riches I heed not. 
nor vain empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and what? Always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Church, we are strangers and exiles. And we can't be deceived into believing that we're going to live our best lives now. Our best lives are yet to come. That's what this chapter is declaring. So think about that. In light of that, because we are people of faith and we heed not the riches of this world, instead we ought to use our finances to help the poor further missions as you guys are doing. You guys are blessing our family and the Williams. You guys are blessing as we are looking forward here in a few weeks to start collecting for Lottie Moon and international missions. You guys are blessing as we look forward to Wednesday night, Operation Christmas Child. This church is passionate about furthering God's name amongst the nations. But also it ought to drive us with our time, shouldn't it? That we disciple our families through the Word and through prayer, that we love and spend time together encouraging one another. Why? Because we realize that our time on this earth is short. As Paul says to the church, he says, It is time to wake up from your slumber, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's coming. So our aim as a church it ought to be continually to help as many as possible hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to organize our days and our time to that end and not the kingdom of men. If we really mean riches, I heed not. If we really mean that thou and thou only are first in my heart. This death of Sarah is a reminder. It's coming to us all, beloved. It is a short time for you and I to live on this earth and proclaim the goodness of God. And so finally, we're left with this moment of the text coming to a conclusion in verses 16 to 20. And we have to wonder, will Abraham finally own a piece of the promised land? And that's when our third truth comes to us. Faith empowers us to face death because death doesn't get the final word. Faith, it empowers you and I to face death because death does not get the final word. Hear it as we close, verses 16 to 20. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So again, what we're going to have is at the end, you might think about this, right? This is, just, this is a business transaction happening, right? They're, they're going to name the price. They're going to name the location. They're going to name the parties involved. And there's going to have this official closing right at the city gate, which is at our courthouse, so to speak. So, so listen to how it is. We've already heard the price name. He's exchanging the, the price for the goods. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, we already talked about again in Genesis 13, the field which, with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over. Now we hear that, right, and think, man, I thought he just needed a cave. Well, it's kind of like you go looking for a bedroom suit, and they're like, well, hey, listen, you need that chest of drawers too. And then, right, you see, and you're like, oh, that mirror matches, right? Like, I mean, like, so you see how it like, just seems like, uh, again, we don't know, but it seems like maybe Ephron's just starting to throw in extras. To Abraham as a possession, verse 18, the presence of the Hittites. Did you hear that? Twice it's going to be noted in this passage, 18 and 20, so that we don't miss it. Listen to what it says. This land that's been promised by God from back to Genesis chapter 12 that I'm going to give you this land and make a great nation of you. It's now been 11 chapters waiting. That's a long time. 
might encourage some of you as you wait. Don't give up hope. Look what it says. To Abraham, verse 18, as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre. That is Hebron. Again, it notes, like bookends, verse 2, verse 19, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So 18 and 20 say that Abraham's finally beginning to possess the promised land. It's coming to him. And so it's this reminder, right? I mean, listen, this glorious truth is coming from this text that even death cannot nullify the promises of God. Hear that. Even death, right? Sarah has died. She does not live to see this moment. But, beloved, let's be encouraged. God's promises and His faithfulness are not stopped even by death. That ought to cause all of our hearts to hope and leap for joy. I mean, it's in Genesis chapter 49, right? You can mark it down, Genesis 49, 29 to 31. The people of God, right? Not only Abraham and Sarah, but Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and others, they will always look back to this point and say, bury me there. Bury me in the land of, with Ephron the Hittite that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite. Bury me there. It's why? Because that's the place of the promise. He's saying, put my bones back there to say, even though I'm dead and gone, my faith shall yet live. It's the hope of the gospel. But I think it's interesting to consider. How does the promised land come to Abraham where he begins to actually have a possession own it? It's through the death of another. It's through the death of another. Contemplate that. How do we inherit the kingdom of heaven? It's to the death of another, isn't it? I mean, don't we hear our Savior say to all of us in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God? Trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But instead, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to get you that you may be where I am. And then Thomas asked the question, I think we all want to know. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we even know the way? And Jesus answers in verse 6. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's this promise that the way into the promised land is through the death of another. There's one greater ultimately than Abraham or Sarah. It is Jesus Christ who gives his life and pays our debt that we owe to God. It's the hope of the gospel. That's how we inherit God's kingdom. It's his victory, triumphantly being raised from the death. And it's that reminder through the resurrection of Christ that even death cannot stop the promises of God. Brother or sister, you and I may not live to see the things that we long to see in this church or in your family. But we can hope that God is always the head of the church. We can hope, as the Word of God says, that not one of God's promises will fail. Listen, we don't have to live in fear of what will happen when we die. The great, one of the greatest matriarchs to ever live has stepped off the scene. And guess what? It hadn't stopped one bit God's plan. To grandmas and grandpas. I'm sure there are worries about what is going to happen when your family, when you're gone, and there's issues and concerns that you wrestle with even today. It doesn't mean that we should not be active, but I want to urge you, you can rest. 
that Almighty God was here before you got here. He'll be here after you're gone. And that can only mean one thing. He's still here now. Let us rest. Let us rest in His hope. As the group Unspoken sings, you can bury the workman, but the work will go on. Right? You can silence the voices, but you can't stop the song. Because when God's Spirit begins to move, right, His will will be done. You can bury the workman, but the work will go on. It's a catchy tune. Maybe you've got to listen to it sometime. To the unbeliever in the room this morning, I want to urge you to contemplate death and eternal life. If this life is all there is, then you are right and we are the fools. I'll just be transparent. It's not my thoughts. That's Paul's. Paul says, if listen, if only in this life, if this is all there is, he said, then why don't we live? Why don't we eat and drink for tomorrow we die? In other words, live it up. Live your best life now. If this is all there is, it's foolish to live for another life. There's not one. But Paul comes away convinced because of one central thing that there is another life to come. It is because on the third day, on a Sunday morning, this is why we gather on a Sunday morning, that the Son of God who died on the cross on Friday was buried on Saturday. On Sunday morning, the Son of God rose again. And Paul says that is absolutely convincing that there is eternal life and a life to come, that there is the promise of the resurrection unto righteousness and also unto death. Unbeliever, I urge you, I cannot make you see it, but I pray this morning by the power of God that you are contemplating your own mortality and your own end. And you, by the grace and mercy of God, would run to Him and cry out, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I need Christ. To the church, there are many things that we could say, but I just maybe want to reiterate just a few of them we've landed on already. One, it's okay to mourn. I don't know where that thought process has come from, that it's not okay to mourn and weep when those that we love die. It's real. It hurts. It's okay to weep. It's okay to mourn. But don't let us forget that we also have hope. Right? Abraham, or Sarah here, but Abraham in a few chapters, he's going to die by faith. Maybe just ask, are you living in the faith right now? That when you're gone, your family and others will have no doubt about you. I'm telling you, you want to leave something great, an inheritance to your family, I want to let you know the greatest inheritance you can leave for them is your faith in Jesus Christ. I sit beside too many families having to wonder where that loved one is. It's a terrible wrestling. I want you to know that, guess what? You say, well, Blake, how could I be prepared? Guess what? Start living it today. Today, this hour, this place, hear God's Word. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. I compel and urge you in light of the King who is coming soon. Repent and believe on this Gospel. Walk faithful in obedience to Him. You will never regret it, beloved. Never. Third and last, to the church, don't forget that not one of God's promises will fail. He has promised that He will build His church. He has promised in Revelation that people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language will be around the throne declaring, Worthy are you, and worthy is the Lamb 
For by your blood you purchase men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they're there for eternity. In light of that truth, in light of this, in light of you contemplating this morning your own death and mortality, live for what matters. Live for what matters. I urge you. You will never regret that in the presence of the Lord. Live with everything you have for the gospel. You know, the hope that we have is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And therefore we have this hope that when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. You see, on Christ the solid rock I stand. What rock do you stand on? As that old song says that we're going to sing in a minute, all of the ground is what, church? Sinking sand. There's one rock that will save you from the storm of God's wrath and judgment that is coming. It is the, the rock of Christ. I urge you. I urge you, beloved. This very day or this week may be your end or my end. Let us be ready. Let us go to God through Christ alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Christ. Thank you, God, that there is no other rock upon which we can stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, that even though it's been thousands of years since Sarah died, you have not, you've not defaulted on any of your promises. You've not shrunk back your hand. Or abandon your people. But God, you have proven even more that your faithfulness and your love toward us by sending your son Jesus. Thank you, Lord. God, we give you praise this morning for the hope that we have, that we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we sang earlier, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Father, we thank you that you love us even in the midst of our sin and you gave your only begotten son that if we might believe in Him, we should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank You for everlasting life. Thank You, God, for the hope that we have that death is not the end. Let us sing now joyfully and let us live triumphantly in the victory of Christ. I pray this for Your name, Lord. Amen.